Um, our reading today is in Ephesians chapter 5, and we're starting from verse 22. You're attached, Dean. <laughs> this seems a bit dangerous. Verse 22. Wives, submit, to your, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is saviour. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. <coughs> husbands, love your wives. Just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church, without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body just as Christ does for the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Just pray just now before Lee comes up. Father God, thank you for your word. Thank you that it's living and breathing. Um, we would ask that you would open our hearts today and that you'd open our ears and that your word would change us. Um, mm. and be with Lee now as he preaches and, and give him courage and strength and purpose. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks, Leah. <clears throat> um, please keep your Bible open there, uh, Ephesians chapter 5. Um, we're jumping back into our series called uh, Real Life, um, thinking about some of the most significant relationships, some of the most significant things which define our everyday lives, often some of the more difficult things, but also some of the most joyful things and what God's Word has to say into those. I trust you were served uh, last week well by Mark Boys, and uh, now as we come before God's Word, we hear what it has to say to us from Ephesians chapter 5. If you've been with us as a church for a while, we have been going through Ephesians in our Harvest uh, Ladies and Men's Ministry. So in many ways, I'm kind of picking up at the end of chapter 5 where those two ministries have left off and finishing it off to the end of the book. Um, so really, a, a lot of what we looked at in those times as men and women kind of feed into this. Um, but for those who, who weren't, uh, uh, didn't track with that, um, you'll still be able to engage and jump in where we're at. So a big part of weddings, um, and I'm sure we've all been to a wedding, a big part of weddings is taking pictures, isn't it? Uh, and particularly some of the most important pictures are that of the, the bride and of the, the groom. And if you go into the house of someone who's married, likely one of the most common photos you will find either hanging or on a sideboard is a picture of their wedding day. 
What would you say to your young child who points to that wedding picture and asks you what it's a picture of? What would you say to them? Well, Paul tells us here in Ephesians 5 that the answer goes beyond it's a husband and a wife. It's a wedding day. It's a marriage. The answer to that question is that the picture points beyond that day and that couple and that marriage to the relationship between Christ and the church. The whole Bible reveals to us, and Ephesians 5 particularly, if we were looking to go somewhere in the Bible uh, to find out more about marriage, Ephesians 5 is one of the most significant places we could go. Ephesians 5 particularly tells us that marriage is meant to serve as a, a beautiful and a compelling display of the marital type union between Christ and the church. His bride, the church and that, the husband and wife have unique contributions to make to that picture. That's what happens in marriage. The, the marriage is meant to serve as a picture of Christ and the church with the husband and wife making unique contributions to the display of that relationship. So if you're married here this morning, the gospel, the relationship between Christ and the church and is meant to shape how we behave in our marriages and what we do with our marriages. It is defining of the marriage relationship. And let me just say up front, as a married person, as a saint who sometimes still sins or often sins, I'm coming to this passage this morning with you as someone who needs the gospel, not as someone who's got it sorted. Let me make that clear up front. I'm coming to this passage with you this morning as a married person. To the church, these verses tell us that this, these verses are not just marriage verses. These verses are not just marriage verses. They speak to the whole church. They remind all Christians of that marital type union we have with Jesus and all that means for us both in the present and in the future. And maybe you're not a Christian here this morning. Know this, Ephesians 5 gives us the foundation and the purpose for marriage as it was designed by God. It shows us that marriage can only be truly beautiful, truly purposeful and flourishing when it's grounded in the sacrificial and self-denying love of Jesus. So what we're going to see this morning, what the, the response that this passage is calling for from us is this, to be shaped by the gospel in our marriages to enjoy and display its beauty. Be shaped by the gospel in our marriages to enjoy and display its beauty. First thing we see this morning in Ephesians 5 is this, when our marriages are shaped by the gospel, they will look like wives who submit as the church submits to Christ. Just before we jump into Ephesians 5 and what these things mean, and those words which are already kind of causing you curiosity, uh, that's, we need to see where marriage fits in the context of the whole Bible. Firstly, marriage and the distinct roles within marriage are creational. Verse 31 in our passage tells us that, it quotes Genesis. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Marriage and the distinct roles within marriage are creational. They were part of God's good creation. Yet sin and Satan distort and disrupt the marriage relationship, the marriage dynamic. Part of the curse in Genesis 3, if you can remember back to when we went through Genesis, is this. He says to Adam, your desire, he says to Eve, sorry, your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. The dynamic has gone one, from one of loving leadership and willing submission to one of going against that leadership and abusing that leadership. 
That's what sin has done and what Satan is seeking to do in the marriage relationship. That's why marriage is often hard, in case you didn't know that, because of our sin and because of Satan. It's why conflict is common in marriage. It's why submission and sacrificial love don't come naturally. Reminds us of the reality of sin in our marriages. It reminds us of the reality that Satan is seeking to destroy our marriages, which we'll look at in a few weeks in Ephesians 6. (coughs) But marriage was part of creation. Sin and Satan distorted it. But there is hope for marriages because of the gospel. I want that to be one of the main things you take away from here this morning, particularly if you're married. Because of the gospel, there is hope for marriages. Sinners are being saved and sanctified. We can change. Our marriages can change. The gospel provides hope for healthy marriages because in the gospel we find love in its biggest and its best and its purest form. We find humility. We find repentance. We find reconciliation. All the ingredients necessary for a healthy marriage. And most of all, in the gospel we find Christ himself. In him we have the grace and the strength we need to live out these things that God's calling us to. The marriage relationship and our distinct roles within it can be embraced and lived out by God's grace. And when we do so, our marriages will grow in love, they will grow in holiness, and they will provide an increasingly compelling display to those around us watching in. So that's where marriage fits in the story of the Bible. What specifically does Paul have to say to us here? Firstly, verse 22, look down with me, wives, Submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. The first exhortation Paul makes here is to wives, and he calls them to submit. And the submission he calls them to here really flows out of chapter 5, verse 21. If you just look up above where we are, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. One of the marks of being spirit-filled. So if you ask the question, what does a spirit-filled person look like? A spirit-filled person is a submissive person. And in in the section above, uh, we're speaking here to the the church, to everyone. Mutual submission within the church. And it's out of reverence for Christ. Our submission to one another in the church flows from our submission to Christ. So all Christians, okay, make no mistake about this, all Christians are called to submit. All Christians are called to mutually submit to each other within the church. Yet submission takes on particular orders in the marriage and in the home and in work, as we'll see over the next three weeks. We might also think of submission to governing authorities and to elders. Submission is essential to the unity of the church. That's one of the big themes we see in Ephesians. And to the unity of all our relationships. So, in one sense, okay, in one sense, wives and husbands are both called to submit to one another. Wives and husbands are called to mutually submit to and love one another. It's not just the husband who loves. It's not just the wife who submits. There is a sense in which both wife and husband do both of those things. They both love one another. They both submit to one another. But there are also differences in that submission and love. And we see that given the comparison between Christ and the church. The church submits to Christ. Christ does not submit to the church. If we were to define what it means to submit for wives, here's what we might come up with. Submit equals this, to willingly place yourself under the loving leadership of your husband 
in obedience to Christ, to willingly place yourself under the loving leadership of your husband in obedience to Christ. How is that submission to work itself out? Verse 22 tells us, as to the Lord. Wives, submit to your own husbands as you submit to Christ, in the same way that you submit to him. The submission of a wife to her own husband, okay, note that, her own husband. She's not to submit to other husbands in the way that she submits to her own. The submission of a wife to her own husband is motivated by and modeled after her submission to Christ. She does it in obedience to Christ, not in obedience to me because I tell you, not in obedience to her husband because he tells her. Submission is the right response of a wife because Jesus calls her to it. Jesus calls her to it. And we'll see that in parenting and in work, the motivation comes from our identity and our submission to Christ in all of those things. Why is she to submit? Verse 23, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. That's why she should to submit, because God has placed the husband in a, in a position of leadership and authority over his wife. That's why she's to submit to him. Ephesians is really clear here. And we'll see importantly in a second what kind of leadership and authority she's been called to submit to. That's crucial. If you want to think about it this way, um, uh, maybe you think about uh, on a wedding day, uh, uh, the married couple has their first dance. <coughs> Someone needs to lead that dance. Submission really is, is like allowing your husband to initiate the step and next step and then follow him in that. That's kind of what marriage is like. It's a, it's a dance, but someone needs to lead that dance. Someone needs to take the initiative. Someone needs to put their foot forward and take the next step for the sake of the marriage and for the maturity of that married couple. And submission looks like uh, following the husband in those steps. Or maybe um, when we were away in, in Florida there, we had a chance briefly to, to, to kayak on the water, uh, me and Zoe. And as the guy was sending us out into the kayak, he's like, Who's going to sit in the back? Because the person in the back needs to steer the kayak. That's kind of what like, marriage is like. Someone needs to steer. Both are equally necessary, equally valuable, equally needed. Yet someone needs to steer and someone needs to follow. God has designed the marriage relationship in such a way that the, the complementary and mutually beneficial ways a husband and wife relate to one another would display the relationship between Christ and the church. And the way in which a wife uniquely contributes to the growth in love and holiness and gospel display of the marriage is through her willing submission. Her submission uniquely displays the submission of the church to Christ. That is crucial. People need to see that. Your marriage needs that. So what does that submission look like in practical terms? Well, let's think about what it's not first, okay? So we need to be clear what submission is not. Submission is not, it does not mean following your husband into sin or doing anything that involves disobeying God. Christ is your ultimate head. Christ is all of our ultimate head. We ultimately are answerable to him. So he, we are not to submit to our husbands in anything that Christ would not call us to. 
in everything, in verse 24, submit in everything to your husbands does not mean no matter what. If your husband is leading you in in a way that is contrary to God's word or is disobedient or sinful, you should not submit to that. It does not mean a wife should ever have to live or act in fear. She should not have to submit to any form of abuse. It does not mean agreeing with everything her husband says or not trying to persuade him he is wrong. Okay? Husbands are flawed. They make mistakes. I get it wrong. Wives can speak the truth and love to their husbands. Yet it does not mean only submitting when you think he deserves it. Husbands will not be perfect. We are still called to submit just as wives are not perfect and husbands are still called to love. So what is submission then? Submission means willingly and respectfully putting your husband's will before your own. It means listening as he seeks to lead. It means not being quarrelsome, manipulative, or complaining when it comes to the conversation. It means displaying a deference to his loving leadership. And when we grasp how this kind of submission is modeled after church, the church's submission to Christ, we grasp that living this way is not oppressive but freeing. It's not demeaning, it's flourishing. In the same way that the church submitting to Christ brings it freedom and allows it to flourish. It will create a joyful, holy marriage that beautifully displays the gospel. How would we apply that to a particular scenario? Well, let's think about a married couple making a decision that will significantly impact their future. Maybe we could think changing jobs, moving church, picking schools, how to spend money. What does that submission look like in that scenario? For the wife, it looks like like she should look to, so she should be looking to her husband to take the lead in those decisions. Listen to her husband regards what decision they should make. It means giving deference to what he thinks will best serve the family and honor God, not himself. It means respectfully speaking into the decision in a helpful way. doesn't mean you need to be silent. It means entrusting him with the responsibility of the decision because you ultimately trust the Lord. For the husband means taking loving initiative in making decisions for your family that best serve your family spiritually and physically and the honor of the Lord. It means making sacrificial and self-denying decisions that prioritize your wife and if you have kids, your kids. It means graciously and persuasively explaining your thinking from God's word, listening to your wife's input and seeking godly wisdom from other mature Christians. That's what the dance looks like. A number of questions might be going through your head right now. I'm sure they are. Firstly, what if my spouse isn't a Christian? Well, we thought about that in the the last two sermons, the first two sermons of this series, so I would encourage you to go back and listen to those. What if my husband isn't loving or taking the lead spiritually? Firstly, let me encourage you to pray. Let me encourage you to encourage him in growing in those things to respectfully and gently call him to lead and provide space for him to do so even if it isn't always what you'd hope for model godliness before him 
be in a good church with mature meals who will bring him along. Be in a good church to encourage you. If you have children, ideally the husband will lead in discipling them, but if he isn't willing or he isn't present, with the help of a church, fill that void. How do I grow in submission to my husband? Because as we thought about at the beginning, these things that we're called to aren't always easy because of sin. We grow in our submission to our husbands by growing in submission to Christ. That's where the desire and the grace and the motivation will come from. We grow in our submission when we are filled with the Spirit. Five, chapter 5, verse 18, do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. These things that Jesus calls us to here are only possible when we have the Spirit within us. If you're a Christian, you have the Spirit. Ask the Lord to fill you. How do I grow in submission to my husband? By recognizing that your submission serves more than your husband. It serves more than your marriage. It serves your children. It serves your church. And it serves the watching world. Your submission is about more than you. It's about more than your marriage. Maybe you're thinking, I'm not a Christian. Therefore, this doesn't really apply to me. Well, as we saw, the design for marriage, this design for marriage is creational and universal. So it does apply to everyone. It's how God intended all marriages to be. But let me encourage you that you need the gospel first. You need to be transformed before you can, your marriage can be transformed. That is possible if you return to Jesus in repentance and faith. So we've spoken to wives. How about husbands? As we think about submission, what does this passage have to say to husbands? How do I make my submission easier for my, life, my, my wife? Well, we'll see that in a moment. It comes down to this. Love them well. Make submission easy for them by loving them and leading them well. What do I do if she isn't submitting? Well, many of the same things we just mentioned above regards what a wife to do if her husband isn't leading in a loving way. Main thing you can do, grow in your love for Christ and seek to show unconditional love to your wife to win her over. We don't grow in these things by coercion, by forcefulness, by manipulation, by nagging. We grow in these things as we grow in, uh, in our love and affection for Jesus and the Spirit enables us to live these things out. What about the church? Remember, these verses aren't just for married people. These verses are for the church. Verses 23 and 24 tell us that Christ is our head. For all of us in the church, Christ is our head. We are called to submit to him in everything. He is worthy of our total submission in everything because he is perfect. He is perfectly loving. Submission to him brings eternal life and earthly flourishing. And as a church, we need to help wives as they seek to grow in their submission to their husbands. Let me say this too, and this is so important. So hear me on this. In the months and the years to come, we need in this church, all of us, to create a culture where struggles in marriage, and not just struggles in marriage, struggles in all of life, we need to create a culture where struggles in marriage are spoken about with safety 
and the gospel applied faithfully and patiently. As an elder in this church, let me encourage you that you should and you can, and I would long for you to be able to share those things with people in this church. Because if we don't, our sanctification and our marriages will suffocate. God does not intend for the struggles of the relationships that we're in to remain silent, to be swept under the carpet, to be carried by ourselves, take them to Jesus and take them to the church. One of the things that we spoke about way at the beginning when we started as a church, and which if you go through and the small groups, you'll know um, is is one of the the most helpful things I, I find as we think about that kind of culture. It's an equation from a guy called Ray Ortland. He says this, the gospel plus safety plus time equals a church where anyone can grow. And that's true of marriages. The gospel plus safety, as in if we're struggling or we're sinning, we don't kick that person up the backside or boot them out the door. We give them time and a safe environment to deal with sin and to deal with suffering. That's a church, that's a marriage where anyone can grow. We apply that principle not just as a church, but as husband and wife to one another as well. So that's what it looks like for the wife. What kind of husband is a wife called to submit to? That's the second thing we see. When our marriages are shaped by the gospel, they will look like wives who submit as the church submits to Christ. And secondly, husbands who love as Christ loved the church. One thing you may have noticed in this passage, or maybe you haven't, is how much more space Paul gives to the instructions to the husband. Do you notice that? How much more space, almost double, he speaks double the amount to husbands as he does to the wife. Really placing the emphasis on the, on the husband to ensure the marriage is healthy and flourishing and showing us the depth of love that he is to show to his wife. More importantly, though, it highlights the initiating, sending, sacrificing, and sanctifying love of Jesus towards the church. When it comes to the church, the skills weigh emphatically on the side of the work of Christ. Verse 25, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Wives are to submit, husbands are to love. So here we see what should define a husband's loving authority over his wife and his home. Love. That's what wives are called to submit to. Love. That is the unique contribution that the husband makes to the marriage relationship. That's the way that he uniquely contributes to that picture, that gospel picture that marriage is meant to display. How would we define love? We define submission. How would we define love? Here it is. To sacrificially love and lead your wife like Christ for the sake of her sanctification. Okay, sanctification is a big word. It means transformation. It means change. It means what God is ultimately doing in us to make us more like Jesus. To sacrificially love and lead your wife like Christ for the sake of her sanctification. So three distinguishing marks of this love, of the husband's love for his wife. Firstly, it's sacrificial love. How did Christ love the church? He gave himself up for her. Okay, let that sink in a minute. He gave 
not of his resources. He gave of himself up for her. Not for him, for her. He laid down his life for her sin and and imperfections. That's how Christ loved the church. He placed himself in between her and the wrath of God. He died so that she might live. The scandalous grace that we just sung about. That's how much he loved her. That's how much he loved us. That's how much he loves you and me. It's a love that's so great that Paul, back in Ephesians 3, prays that we might have strength to comprehend it. Okay? That's how great it is. Ephesians 3, 18 to 19, if you flick back, Paul needs to pray for us and not only pray for us, but pray that we would have strength to comprehend the, the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. That's the extent of his love. It's a sacrificial love that loves to death. Speaking to someone uh, just this past week about marriage, about my role as a husband, reflecting on my, on, and, I, and I think I can speak on behalf of most husbands in the room, on our imperfections. And as we were talking, it kind of all just boiled down to this. As a husband, I need to die to self more. I need to die to myself more every day. I need to deny myself more. That's what sacrifice looks like. It's not about my wants, my desires, my expectations, my interests. It's about my wife's. It's a sacrificial love, and then secondly, it's a sanctifying love, verses 26 to 27. Here is the purpose of God's love, the purpose of Christ's love for the church, the purpose of love for the husband towards his wife, to sanctify her. To what end did Jesus die for us? To what end? What was the goal? What was the purpose? So that he might sanctify us. That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. That he might present to the church himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. Jesus died to cleanse us, to wash us, to present us holy before himself. He died for us to change us, and he does that by his spirit through his word. That's what it means, washing of water with the word. John 17, Jesus prayed to his Father, sanctify them in your truth. Change them in your truth. Your word is truth. Jesus loved us when we were blemished, spotty, wrinkled, stained. He loved us when we weren't lovely. And in his mercy and grace, he chose us so that he might make us beautiful. It's a lifelong process. We still have sin lingering in us. But the good news is that Jesus is eternally committed to making you holy. He is eternally committed committed to making his bride beautiful. He has promised to do that. He is doing it in your life. Therefore, husbands, our love is to be a sanctifying love. Okay, let's make no mistake here. Husbands can't live up to that kind of love, right? That's a perfect love. And ultimately, it's Jesus who makes our wives 
more holy. It's Jesus that ultimately changes them. But we are to do everything in our power to aid that sanctification, to aid that change and that transformation. How? By praying for her and praying with her. By feeding her heart God's word and leading her to trust and obey it. By helping her fix her eyes on Jesus in the midst of sin and suffering. By making sure she's in a healthy and flourishing church community. By modeling Christ-likeness to her and before her. By helping her love Jesus more than you. More than children. More than the material things of this world. Sacrificial love, sanctifying love, and thirdly, strengthening love, verses 28 to 31. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. Husbands here are called to cherish and nourish their wives like they would their own body. Okay, so husbands, same way husbands don't neglect their own bodies, they, they feed, okay? When you go to have lunch this afternoon, you're going to make sure you get some food by hook or by crook. You're going to feed your body. You're going, to, you're going to clean your body. You're going to make sure you get sleep for your body. So too, husbands are to make sure those things happen for their wife. They're to nourish them and cherish them. Spiritually and physically. Again, the example is Christ. The church, the image there gives us all, uh, is of the church as Christ's body. Flesh and bones. The church is his body. He is its head. Just as Christ nourishes and cherishes and preserves and protects the body as church, so too husbands are to do that for their wives. And we see another key reason in verse 31. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. The two shall become one flesh. So the husband goes, verse 29, he's not, he's not just his own flesh anymore in verse 29. He's one flesh in verse 31. He's not his own flesh. He is one flesh now. To strengthen his wife is to strengthen his marriage and to strengthen himself. He can't just look after himself anymore. He's called to look primarily after his wife. And in doing that, he serves the one flesh union that his marriage now is. Husbands are not to neglect their wives, but nourish them. Meet their needs, spiritual and physical. Cherish them, care for them. It's hard to capture that any better than the historical vows written by Cranmer that many of you who, were, have been, who have been married will have said. One of the most beautiful pieces of English I think we have. I take you to be my wedded wife, to have and to hold from this day forward, for better or for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish till death do us part according to God's holy ordinance and thereto I give you myself. That's what it looks like to love and cherish. So what does this loving leadership look like in practice? Two scenarios, decision-making that we've already spoken to and conflict resolution. Loving leadership for the husband in this scenario, in the decision-making scenario, means bearing primary responsibility and taking initiative with respect to how the decision is informed by God's word and according to God's will. It means directing the conversation prayerfully, lovingly, gently, and winsomely. 
according to God's word, for the sake of the spiritual health and holiness of the family and the honoring of the Lord. It means putting the interests of wife and family above our own. It means not being domineering in the decision, nor passive. Neither domineering nor passive, but taking the lead in a loving way. It means being open, as we already thought about, to, to conversation, to correction and persuasion from your wife. And it means viewing decision-making scenarios or conversations ultimately as disciple-making conversations and decisions. The husband needs to view decision-making as disciple-making. Decisions that will aid and further the discipleship and the sanctification and the holiness of his wife and family. What about conflict resolution, second scenario? What does loving leadership look like when there's conflict in the marriage? Which there will be. Christ initiated reconciliation, so should husbands. They should lovingly move towards their wife even if she bears some blame for the conflict. God sent Christ, he made the first move. Husbands should be quick to repent of their sin and seek forgiveness from their wife. They should be quick to forgive when their wife repents and seeks forgiveness from them. Husbands are to be gracious, merciful, and meek peacemakers. And this is so important. Marriage portrays the gospel not just when love and submission are going well. Okay? Marriage doesn't just portray the gospel when those things are going well. In God's grace, when there's conflict or strife, we can display the gospel through our humble repentance, forgiveness, and reconciliation towards one another. That too can serve as a powerful witness to those watching on, to our kids, to the church, to the world around us. So there's two big areas where husbands are called to take loving initiative, decision-making, reconciliation, and we'll think about discipleship in the home next week. Verse 31, 32, look down with me. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Verse 32, this mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Verse 2 here is telling us that, 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 that the mystery, that the mystery that is the plan of salvation that God began from creation, which marriage portrays, refers to Christ and the church. Marriage reveals that mystery. Marriage helps to reveal that mystery. So a number of things that verse 32 teaches us about marriage, kind of bigger picture things we need to take away. Firstly, the plan of marriage God was planning redemption and salvation from before the foundation of the world. Before sin even entered the world, God intended marriage, which was created before the fall, to display the redemption and the salvation of the church. From day one, before the fall, marriage was designed to display the gospel, to reveal the mystery of God's plan of salvation. That's how intentional that's how initiative-taking God is when it comes to our salvation. It's not an afterthought. Marriage shows us that, and it raises the importance of marriage today. The plan of marriage, the purpose of marriage. Marriage is more than companionship. 
It's about the gospel and the Great Commission. Marriage is for the purpose of mission. It's for the service of the kingdom of God. It was always designed to have an outward focus, to be about something beyond itself. Marriages are are starved of joy and purpose when they aren't built on serving Jesus and his kingdom. Healthy marriages also serve to unify the church through how they demonstrate God's love and bring stability to the fabric of the church community. Unhealthy marriages do the opposite. Unhealthy marriages affect all of us, no matter whether we're married or not. And not only in the church, biblical marriage also serves to bring stability and safety, particularly for kids, in society and serves to make society flourish. The plan, the purpose, and then the picture of marriage. Marriage portrays the eternal and beautiful relationship between Christ and the church. Therefore, we must uphold its beauty. And we must uphold its design, which in our culture is becoming increasingly difficult. All other forms of marriage, and here's one of the reasons why we need to to uphold and to strive for and to, to fight for biblical marriage is because all other forms of marriage, whatever form that might take, blur the picture. They distort the image. Only heterosexual, monogamous, lifelong marriage truly portrays the gospel picture. We see that in in the news in in the last few days, how how these things are are really uh, upon us. The Church of England choosing to compromise and be confusing about biblical marriage creates a blurred image. We rob our churches and our towns and our countries of one of the most purposeful and beautiful pictures that it needs to see the gospel. Unbiblical di- so same-sex marriage creates a blurred image. Unbiblical divorce and remarriage, as we've thought about in previous sermons, creates a broken image. Those things aren't unredeemable. But here's why we need to fight for uh, and to live out God's design for marriage. We must also uphold the differences in gender. Again, something our culture continues to blur. God has intended for male and female to be distinct, equal, and yet different. You see that again with the the last few days, the transgender um, things we see in the news with regards to prisons and all those kind of things. Society is deeply confused when we don't follow God's word with regards to the beautiful gift of sex, sexuality. So it's something our culture continues to blur and many within the church seek to blur and flatten out those differences as well. These differences were established before the fall. They always apply no matter what culture we're in. And they are good. Without those differences, we distort the picture. Two people can't lead the dance. Two people can't steer the kayak. We need the differences. Blurring gender roles in marriage leads to malfunctioning marriages. The complementary roles within marriage are mutually beneficial and good. We must pursue them, teach them, and model them as such. And then finally, the promise of marriage. Make no mistake that there is an eternal promise wrapped up in marriage. If you're a Christian, you are part of Christ's church, whatever your marital status is. You're part of Christ's church. You are married to Christ. 
That's the marriage that eternally matters. And Christ sees you as beautiful because his blood bought you and cleansed you. That's the promise contained within marriage, even if you're not married. Christ, the bridegroom, has come to give himself up for you, bought you with his blood, redeemed you, and has cleansed you. And marriage doesn't just capture a moment in the past. Okay? When we have our wedding photos in our, in our houses, they capture, don't they? They, oh, they capture a moment in the past. They don't tell us how that marriage is going to turn out in the future. Marriage doesn't just capture a moment in the past. The cross, that's the moment in the, in the past for the Christian, the cross. It's a picture that points forward to what will happen when Jesus returns. The, bride is come, the bridegroom is coming back for his bride. There's a promise wrapped up in marriage that reminds us that Jesus, the bridegroom, is coming back for his bride. It's a promise of eternity with Christ sinlessness, spotlessness, and in the presence of Jesus forever. That's the promise wrapped up in marriage. So loved ones, let's be shaped by the gospel in our marriages to enjoy and display its beauty. Wives submit, husbands love, and church can rejoice because in Christ we are loved. We're being changed and we're heading for glory. In Christ, we can obey the call to love and submit. In Christ, we have grace and forgiveness for when we mess up. That's the good news of the gospel. So all of us, married or not, let's look to him and rest in his sacrificial and self-denying, sanctifying, strengthening love this morning. Let me pray for us. Um, I'm going to pray for us, uh, and then we're going to and spend some time around the Lord's table. Father, we come before you in awe of what Christ has done for us in giving himself up for us. Father, may we come to you, all of us, with humility before that love, find rest in it, rejoice in it, and seek to be changed by it. Father, we pray particularly for those who are married in our church and in our town and in our nation. Father, we pray that you would keep and preserve our marriages, not just for the sake of the marriages, but for the sake of the church and of society. Father, we pray that you would help those who are married to live out these things obediently, faithfully, graciously. Father, how much we need help to live these things out. how much we need your spirit to change us and empower us to obey these commands. And we're so thankful that you promised to do that. Help us to keep in step with that spirit. Help us to be filled with that spirit. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.